Please do join me and take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 22. We have arrived at uh, week number 60 in our Acts series. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn once again to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Christian life, I think all of us know, not only doctrinally, but by experience, is full of difficulties and dangers, trouble and trials. Remember Jesus' final words of instruction, his teaching to his disciples the night he was betrayed. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble. I think that's got to be a verse that a lot of the visible church, a lot of us, me, forget sometimes. In this world, we will have trouble. And James, in his letter, gives us instructions of what to do when we meet trials of various kinds. Peter speaks of Christians having been grieved by various trials. Isn't that an interesting word, various? Insert it. What trial are you facing right now? What difficulty? What trouble? Various trials, trials of various kinds. Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn of, by John Newton, verse 3, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I, all, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. To which we can add also trials. Through many trials I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now, in view of those opening statements, what is one of your go-to passages in the Bible for strength, for refuge in the midst of trials? Where do you turn? Where do you go? In the middle of the night, you don't even have to open your Bible because you've got it already memorized. You've meditated upon it. It's always at the ready. Well, one of my go-to verses, and I bet it's one of yours as well, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, what does trusting God look like? What is the evidence that presents itself that someone is really trusting God? Our text today, I believe, will present us with a couple of evidences of what it looks like to trust God. But before we jump into today's text, let's review. How did we get here? Remember last week, making a defense? We started in chapter 21, verse 36, and made our way to chapter 22, verse 22. And I began last week by saying, if you're guilty, 
you don't have a defense, and if you're innocent, you don't need a defense. Now, that sounds good, but just a bit of reflection, um, we realize that it may not be good advice, especially if you're innocent. You see, Paul, last week we saw, spoke in his own defense before a crowd that, what, had just tried to kill him. Talk about courage. Would you want to do that? To speak respectfully to a crowd that had just tried to kill you? And his defense is in the form of a personal testimony. Now, now why does he do that? He's fulfilling the ministry that he has received from Jesus. And remember back in chapter 20, we, we heard what the ministry that he received from Jesus was. And what is it? It's verse 24 of chapter 20, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul is doing in his personal ministry. He really, in one sense, could care less about himself. He's testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. It was his motive. It was his mission. Last week we saw in that personal testimony, Paul said, I'm a Jew who met the Lord, the righteous one, and who has been commissioned by God to go to the Gentiles. And in doing that, he's saying faith in Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of God's covenant with the people of Israel. Jesus is the yes to all the promises of God. But as we saw last week, that speech of his, that personal testimony is interrupted. As soon as he mentions going to the Gentiles, the speech is shut down. It abruptly ends. It started off, as it were, respectfully. It ends once again with Paul's life being threatened. Once again, Paul is following Jesus. And this is an echo of Jesus' speech in the synagogue that ended poorly, not because of Jesus, but because of the response of the crowd who were enraged that God had mercy outside of Israel to others. Well, we're going to unpack and explore our text, this narrative by Luke, this account of what happened to Paul after the crowd wanted to kill him again by considering some R&R. Some of you familiar with the military or at least watch shows, R&R, right? Rest and relaxation. No, that's not what I'm thinking about. R&R, every year we had to go to this Navy R&R workshop, Navy Rights and Responsibilities. Probably uh, Rex and, and Stan have been to Navy Rights and Responsibilities workshops because we had to learn that you have rights but you also have responsibilities. So our first point is this. Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen before the tribune. Join with me as I pick up reading in verse 22 and then we'll continue. So the first point, Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen before the tribune. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. 
But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Christians are dual citizens. What do I mean? Our citizenship is in heaven by faith in Jesus, but our citizenship is also here on earth. And in heaven and on earth, we have rights. John chapter 1, that great passage We read, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He gave the right, God-given rights to believers. But if you step back, human beings, by virtue of being human, have rights. And our country has even spoken of inalienable rights. God-given rights as those made in the image of God. And it takes wisdom to know when to exercise and when not to exercise your rights. And if you've been using table talk recently, you'll notice that Paul, even though he had rights as an apostle, he often didn't use those rights. He had a a bigger purpose and a bigger reason than to exercise the rights that he had had. So what's the initial plan of the tribune? The plan is this, torture. See, when we read examined by flogging, it's not flogging with a simple whip. No, it's with what's called a scourge or a flagellum. It's, it's pieces of leather attached to a, a wooden stick, and in that leather are, are bits and pieces of bone and metal. Yes, it's going to cause pain, but it's also going to bruise the flesh, tear the flesh, And there's historical evidence that in this day and age, people who were flogged by the Romans didn't survive the flogging. The initial plan of getting the information he wants, why is this riot happened? Paul, who are you? What did you do? What have you said? He's going to get the information out via torture. But then... As Paul is about to be flogged, he asked a question. Now, notice he didn't make a statement like, how dare you? How dare you do this to a Roman citizen? No, he asked a question. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see, you could flog a Roman citizen who's convicted, who's a criminal, who based on evidence deserves punishment. But Paul, just to ask a question, isn't it amazing just asking questions can have a very beneficial effect. It's somewhat non-threatening, asking a question. 
You know, Paul, we, we know in Romans, he, he, he urges Christians to submit to human governments as God's ministers of justice, to punish criminals and to defend the innocent. But he also expects the governments to live up to their high calling, instituted by God. He is wanting the Roman government to live up to its responsibilities, to punish the guilty, but to defend the innocent. He's challenging those in power, and right now it's the centurion and the tribune, to wield power justly. Because all of us, I think, are tempted here on earth to relate to flawed governments. And all governments, human governments, are flawed in one way or another. And we're tempted either to be intimidated into compliance or to be defiantly rebellious. We're either intimidated and, and compliant or we're defiant and rebellious. But here Paul shows a different way, calm He's calm in the chaos. Why? Because his confidence is that Christ is Lord of all. Paul shows us here a God-glorifying response that's superior to either intimidated compliance or defiant rebellion. Calm, confidence in Christ. Because he knows that all power and authority has been given to Jesus. So you heard, read, what happens. The centurion goes to the tribune. The tribune comes back in a personal interview. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes. He immediately says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I, I bought mine. More like it, I, I, I bribed officials. And Paul gently, calmly says that he was born a Roman citizen. It's kind of in the pecking order, higher. Paul, again, is being respectful to this human authority. And so the tribune revises his plan. He revises his plan. Notice in verse 30, and I'll continue to read. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. The initial plan torture to get the information the revised plan how about a trial before the council the Sanhedrin the the Jewish ruling council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees the tribune really wants to know the reason why Paul's presence this one man disturbed the temple why there was chaos and confusion and a riot he's rescued Paul twice why? What's he rescuing him from? He's going to go now to a trial. Now, before we move on, we just saw clearly that Paul, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, an apostle, what did he do? He exercised his right as a Roman citizen. Now, was Paul afraid? Is that why he asked the question, was Paul not trusting God and, and wanted to take matters into his own hands? You know, I run into people my whole life. Well, I'm just going to trust God. Well, I'm just going to trust God. That's what I'm going to do. Well, you know, 
Often, trusting God means taking some kind of action. So Paul, in in exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, is fully trusting God. Isn't that interesting? God provides for Paul through a pagan government. Where in your life right now are you trusting God by allowing some of the realities of life here on earth to to provide for you? You know, when we trust others, when we trust experts to care for us, I trust the pilot to fly the plane, I, I trust the lawyer to represent me well, I trust the plumber to do a good job, I'm not ultimately trusting my life to them, but I'm trusting God. You go to the emergency room, you're unconscious, you're going to trust the people taking care of you to take care of you. Often trusting God doesn't mean just saying, I'm going to trust God. It means taking action. And here Paul takes action. He's not afraid. He's trusting God. So we see Paul not only exercising his right as a Roman citizen, but also fulfilling his responsibility as the Lord's servant when his trial comes in the form of an actual trial before the council. And so after exercising his right as a Roman citizen before the tribune, we now see Paul fulfilling his responsibility as the Lord's servant before the council. Join with me as I read uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul here fulfills his responsibility as the Lord's servant. Remember, in the beginning of his letter to the Romans and his letter to Titus, Paul 
identifies himself as a servant of the Lord. In Romans, a servant of Christ Jesus. In Titus, a servant of God. And as a servant, he has a responsibility to his master to carry out his master's will. And how, again, does Paul sum up his ministry? The ministry that he didn't go out and get, the ministry, rather, that he received from the Lord. It's in chapter 20, verse 24. His ministry, his service as a servant, is to testify to the grace of the gospel of God. You're going to see that as Paul heads to Rome. He's going to continue to testify to the grace of the gospel of God. It's his mission statement. It's the motive for his mission. So Paul identifies himself in what he does by just serving the Lord. But he declares, he makes an opening statement. He's lived, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience. Wow. Even before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was living and had a good conscience. He met Jesus, and after that, his life changed dramatically, and yet he still lives his life knowing that it's before God as his witness. And specifically, he knows he's done nothing to provoke this riot He's not been against Jewish law. He's not been against the temple. He's not even been against Roman law. And for that statement, that I've had a good conscience, he is struck in the face. Does that sound familiar? At another trial, another man struck in the face, Paul is following Jesus. And so after being struck, Paul rebukes. Look at verse 3 again. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. You see, Paul just saw the Romans live up to expectations. And now he expects Israel's leaders to, to observe the demand of God's law for what kind of justice? Impartial justice. Not punishment and then the trial, but the trial and then maybe punishment. Luke, in writing Theophilus, this orderly account in Luke of the ministry of Jesus in, in Acts of the continuing ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, uh, Luke is showing that Paul is treated fairly and he's protected by Roman law and yet not by Jewish law. Pretty humbling, isn't it? The pagans are doing better than the religious here. But after Paul rebukes, what happens? He himself is rebuked. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? In a word, Paul apologizes. He leads off, I did not know. Paul acted in ignorance. Now, as I was studying this, there were at least five or six proposals as to why Paul said what he said and why he didn't recognize the high priest and it, and it 
ranges from Paul being sarcastic to Paul's eyesight being bad and couldn't see Ananias and, and all of these things. And we could spend an hour kind of define the fine points to see which one is best. And men that I respect land on different sides. But we can say this. Paul's cause was just and his words were true. But when he had learned he had dishonored the office, he humbly repented for the way he had spoken those words. Anybody think Paul is sinless? I mean, he himself says what? The chief of sinners. So this may be an instance where Paul was angry, sinfully angry. He got popped in the face. He shouted out, based on scripture memory, something that he thought applied. And then he's told, wait a minute, you've just said that against the Lord's high priest. Paul recognizes, I got to honor the office. I got to be respectful to the office. I mean, how do we talk about the president? How do we talk about the vice president? How do we talk about the judge? How do we talk about the mayor? Honor the office. Paul recognizes he was wrong. He humbly repented. You see, this is a reversal. There's prophetic wrath, but now there's repentant respect. And my friends, when you and I can do that, when we can be angry and then humbly apologize, when we can say the wrong thing to our wife and ask her for forgiveness, when we can lay it into our children and then turn around and say, Daddy needs Jesus too, boys and girls. Wow. Who are we looking like? We're looking like Jesus, who though sinless, nonetheless exhibited that calm demeanor, that trust. In verse 6, Paul gives the reason why he's on trial. Remember, the Roman tribune wants to know, why has Paul done, what has he done? And Paul sums it up. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul's, Christians, Paul's Christian convictions are just a faithful uh, extension of God's promises that are all filled in Jesus. The Pharisees believed in the final resurrection as Israel's ultimate hope. And Paul sees that hope fulfilled in Jesus. He's the first fruits. He's the first to be raised and all those after him by faith in him will be raised. Remember the Sadducees wasn't just the Pharisees that tried to trap Jesus. It was the Sadducees also. Remember they told that story to Jesus about, hey, in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Whose, whose husband? And Jesus says, what? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You are quite wrong. I'd love to be there at that scene. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus sees right through it. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God, basically the power of God to bring people back from the dead. The resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? 
There's dissension, there's division, and there is a discussion. It reminds me of a Presbyterian meeting back in um, Philadelphia. I was being examined for theology, and I stated my, my, my belief, and I'm telling you, right after that, the examiner and me just stepped back while the presbytery just went back and forth. They were divided. Some believe this, some believe that. But here, it wasn't just this discussion. It was dissension and division and things escalated. What? Luke uses the word, they became violent. And so what happens? The Romans come to the rescue again. He has to step in and remove Paul. It's not just the crowd that wants to tear Paul to pieces. It's the religious leaders of Israel. And Paul is rescued by the Romans. Who's in control? Who's in control? I'm thinking about a contemporary Christian song from the early or the mid-80s, right? God is in control. So we've seen what Paul has done. He's exercised his right as a Roman citizen and he's fulfilled his responsibility as a servant of the Lord. Now let's see what the risen Lord Jesus Christ did. In a word, he encouraged Paul. Look at verse 11. So Paul's been removed. He's in the barracks. We read in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also so you must testify also in Rome. Take courage. I love how the new the King James and the New King James say it. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. It's an amazing statement by Jesus that Paul did what? He testified to the facts about me. You don't often see that word. I can only find it twice and it's in Acts about facts. But Jesus says, you have testified to the facts about me. The late senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, back in 1983 in a column in the Washington Post said this. Some of you probably have heard it. You're entitled to your own opinion but you are not entitled to your own facts. You're entitled to your own opinion. Everybody's got one. But you're not entitled to your own facts. That is reality. And here we live in a day where someone actually used the word alternative facts. If we've witnessed anything in the last few years, decade, longer, it's an attempt to destroy the idea that there is truth. That there really are things called facts that you can't change, you can't spin, you can't adjust. They just are. And one prominent figure said a few years ago, don't believe what you see with your eyes. An assault on truth. Yet Jesus encourages Paul for telling the truth of what he had seen and what he had heard. It's amazing, isn't it? He met Jesus and testified to what you've seen, you've seen me, and what you've heard. You've heard me speak to you. 
And what is the big fact? What is the big fact? The hope and the resurrection of the dead. Some translations, the hope in the resurrection of the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not a conspiracy theory. Why? Because there's a whole lot of evidence. In fact, the evidence that he wasn't resurrected is almost minuscule. The evidence that he did return to life and was seen and ministered to others, it's, it's overwhelming. If you were with us on Easter, you may have remembered a whole page entitled The Resurrection of Jesus, and it was a quote from the book The Reason for God, and in it, we read this, is written by Tim Keller, as Pascal put it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Virtually all the apostles and early Christian leaders died for their faith, and it is hard to believe that this kind of powerful self-sacrifice would be done to support a hoax. You see, Jesus is encouraging Paul that he testified to the facts about me, primarily my resurrection. Paul knows it's not a hoax. He knows it doctrinally from the scriptures. He knows it experientially. He met Jesus. And so we see Paul being encouraged by Jesus. But you know what? Everybody that follows Jesus, everybody that trusts in Jesus is encouraged by him. You see, Paul is wonderfully reassured that no matter how dark and difficult, he will get to Rome. There was a bit of question. He knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. Am I going to make it? It's the divine must. So you must testify also in Rome. Jesus encourages us how he's always present with us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. I am with you always, he says. And there are occasional times of increased awareness of his presence through his word and by his spirit. I mean, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, in God's word, the Lord Jesus stands by us and speaks. So Jesus has a ministry of encouragement to us. Take courage, be of good cheer. So let me ask all of you who follow Jesus this question. When was the last time you told a fellow believer, take courage, be of good cheer? Do you even know the trials your brothers and sisters are facing? I mean, often we don't want to share that, do we? Because it removes the facade that our life is going super well. You know, maybe we should share our trials, our difficulties, our troubles, so that people could encourage us. They may not encourage us because they think everything is going well. It's a two-way street. Open yourself up to be encouraged and and receive encouragement and be the one who says be of good cheer in the midst of trial 
Well, Paul has exercised his right as a Roman citizen. He's fulfilled his responsibility here as a servant of the Lord. And he is encouraged by the Lord. So as we conclude, I want us to consider briefly, how do we trust God in the trials? What does trusting God look like? My friends, trusting God means walking with Jesus as he is present in us and with us by his Holy Spirit. Trusting God means walking with Jesus. You see, at its core, trusting God isn't rule keeping. Rule keeping is often a pious way of of trusting yourself. Uh, Throughout my life, I've known professing Christians whose center of gravity, it's their default value, it's their home base, it's, wherever, it's where they run, it's rule keeping, especially the rules that they themselves make up. My friends, that is sad and that is spiritually dangerous. You see, rather at its core, trusting God means relating to Him Through faith in Jesus Christ, no one comes to the Father except through me or by me, Jesus said. Walking by faith in Jesus Christ, living by faith in Jesus Christ is trusting God. I hope many of you have copies of the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan devotions and prayers Well, toward the end of the book, they have prayers for the days of the week. And on fourth day morning or Wednesday, under the heading True Christianity, this is what is written in the prayer. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interest a shadow and a dream. So my friends, are you walking with Jesus today? Or is Jesus the one who is merely a shadow or a dream? Are you walking with Jesus? And who is the one with whom we walk? In other words, who is Jesus? Remember the betrayal, the arrest. The false charges, the trial, the torture in the form of Roman flogging and crucifixion. You want to know how Jesus' earthly life ended? Betrayal, arrest, false charges, a sham trial, the torture flogging, crucifixion. My friends, in our place and on our behalf, Jesus didn't exercise his rights as the Son of God. He didn't. But in our place and on our behalf, he most certainly fulfilled his responsibility to save us. You see, he took our sin upon himself and in doing so, he took the blame 
and the curse we deserve. So that all those who trust in him would get the the vindication and the blessing that he deserved. Kids, this is especially for you, but it's for everyone. I say it repeatedly, in our place and on our behalf. In our place and on our behalf. My friends, if someone dying for you, for the sins you have committed, are committing and will commit, if that doesn't move you, if someone else getting punished for what you did, if that doesn't move you, if that doesn't change you, In me, remember Jesus says, said peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. In the world you'll have trouble. But take heart. What? I have overcome the world. And what did the world lay at Jesus? Death. And he overcame death. He was resurrected in our place and on our behalf to lead the way for all those who were united to him by faith. May this church be full of people who are trusting God by walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been pleased to preserve this narrative account in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul for us. Indeed, everything written was written for our encouragement. And we thank you, God, for this. Oh, Lord, help us individually as families and a church to trust you, to walk with Jesus, to enjoy the benefits that your common grace give to all people and especially enjoy and rejoice in the benefits that come to us through faith in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.